Tonight we're in Genesis chapter 9. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that midweek we can stop and pause and spend time together in worship and in your word to get re-centered based on who you are and your promises. We thank you that you're a God, a father of covenant, that when you make a pledge, an oath, a commitment, that you're faithful to your covenant. We thank you that you're a God of grace. And this covenant that you gave to Noah expresses your grace. Lord, we thank you for the honesty of your scripture, the honesty of Noah's shortcomings. Lord, and how we can learn from his mistakes and see his, his faith in spite of himself. So Lord, we invite you here. Holy Spirit, we do surrender to you as we just sang. Have your way in our lives. Have your way in this service. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 9 brings us to a starting over point uh, for Noah and his family. They're the only ones living after the flood. There's so much wickedness and destruction that God wipes out everyone except for Noah and his three sons and their wives. So quite a daunting task for them to start over. There's three sections in this chapter. The first is commission. God gives his commission to Noah as there is this new beginning, this starting over. And then we see God's covenant given to Noah that he's never going to flood the earth again. The sign of that covenant is the rainbow. And the chapter ends in a surprising way with Noah's compromise. He gets drunk. He's naked on the floor. His son Ham finds him in that naked state. So let's look in verse 1 of chapter 9. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So God blessed Noah and his sons. I should say so. They're the only ones that are alive after the flood. Because of God's grace in their lives, here they are living, breathing, being able to embrace this opportunity to start over. God's instructions are be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. The same instruction that was given to Adam and to Eve. This is a true second chance. This is a true new beginning, not only for Noah, but for all of humanity, all for mankind. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all the, that move on the earth, and all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hand. So this is a change in relationship, it seems to be, with the animals and Noah. We assume that prior to the flood that this fear wasn't there, but now the animals are afraid of mankind. It seems necessary because with just Noah and his sons, the animals would have the advantage, wouldn't they? Uh, procreating at a much faster rate. And so God protects Noah and his sons by putting a fear in the animals of man. And this is true today. If you go up to a wild animal, they tend to be afraid of you. They tend to want to keep their distance from uh, mankind. In verse 3, every moving thing that moves shall be food for you, and I have given you all things, even as the green herb. So God gives to them all of the plants to be able to eat, but all of the animals as well. And so God doesn't call them to just a vegetarian diet. Praise the Lord. Amen, right? So they're able to eat the animals as well as the vegetables. 
Don't forget your vegetables. They are good for you. I need to be reminded of that as well. Verse 4, But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of a man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by this his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. In this commissioning, God is given instructions. And he's saying when you do eat of the animals, you're to drain the blood first. You're not to eat the animal in a way that another animal eats an animal. If if an animal kills another animal, they're going to just devour it and eat the blood as well. But that's not to be the case for Noah and all that would follow. If you kill an animal, you're to drain the blood first. Now, why does God give this uh, instruction? Because he says that the life is in the blood. So we're acknowledging that God has given this creature an existence. God has given this creature life. And we're honoring the life giver by killing this animal in a humane way and then allowing the blood uh, to bleed before we eat that, the animal. Some of you guys know I enjoy hunting. And anytime that I've been able to kill a deer or, or kill a, an elk, it's a humbling thing. It's a sobering thing. You know, it's something that we're largely removed from because we go to Costco and we go to King Supers and Sprouts and we get, get our meat, you know. But this animal died in order so that we could be able to live and obviously, it's not the same as a person, and that gets confused in our culture, but there is to be some respect in that whole process, and, and to go about it in a way that honors uh, the Lord. Ultimately, the life being in the blood, it points to Jesus dying upon the cross and his blood being shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Then it focuses on this exhortation to not take someone's life, and it says, if you take someone's life, then your life is uh, required. And the only exception to this uh, is capital punishment. Uh, if you're in that governmental position that you're instituting capital punishment as a crime, as a police officer or someone that's in the military that's doing their job to protect uh, society, Romans 13 uh, makes it really clear that God has raised up uh, authority to hold uh, people in check, hold wickedness in check. In Romans 13, verse 3, it says, For rulers are not a tear to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be afraid of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he doesn't bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So if a soldier is fighting in the line of duty in war and someone dies, then they're not under this that they would lose their life. If a police officer is acting justly and in the process of defending others, someone loses their life, they're not uh, held accountable uh, to this. If, if someone dies in true self-defense, I think that falls in another category. But everything else, homicide, God is saying that if you take someone else's life, then your life uh, should be taken. Now, what was the problem prior to the flood? Violence was rampant, wasn't it? So violence was just going out of control. People were taking each other's life. So God, as he's commissioning and he's setting things forward in a new direction, he says, look, there needs to be a value upon life. And you don't just take someone's life. If you take someone's life, then you need to lose your life in replace of it. 
And the reason is, is because God says, for in the image of God, he made man. God is saying the value of every life. Every person that's ever been created is God's divine masterpiece. They reflect the image of God. They're different than the animal kingdom. Even if a person doesn't know the Lord and they're not walking with the Lord and their heart is far from God, just in the way that God has designed them is they're bearing God's image. Our culture, our society, our day, here in November of 2018, we could sure use a wake-up call when it comes to the value of human life, couldn't we? The sanctity of human life. To value someone's life enough to say, I'm not going to commit murder. That's not going to be an option. To value life in the womb, because life begins at conception, and say, we're going to honor that, and we're going to protect babies in the womb. To honor life in the elderly years, and not to ascribe to assisted suicide and say, because there's suffering and there's a certain level of pain, that let's go ahead and end our lives. That, that really is not showing honor to God. God's the giver of life and he's the taker of life. And even if it gets hard, and even if there's suffering at the end of our days, there's value in that, isn't there? Think about all of the good and meaningful conversations that have happened in the midst of suffering in someone's last days. We don't want that, we don't choose that, but that's the reality of it, and we're not in control, and so we don't take life in the womb, we don't take life in the elderly years, and once you go down this slope of taking life in the womb, taking life in the elderly years, where does it stop? You know, so someone is disabled, are you going to take their life? Someone doesn't contribute to society the way that society thinks and they cost more than they contribute. So what are you going to do? Take their life? So you don't feel like living any longer. So you take your own life? You see, see what happens here? So we see it in homicide. We see it in suicide. We see it in euthanasia. We see it in abortion. All of it comes back to this central issue of saying we've got to value life. And the way that we value life is by valuing the life giver, God. It's understanding who God is when we understand who God is, then we understand the gift of life, our own lives and those that are around us. And I'd encourage you, be a voice for life because it glorifies the Lord. You know, be a voice for all these different aspects to say life matters and, and life is important. And I know that it grieves God's heart when homicide takes place. And one of the things that I watch and monitor in our community is our homicide rate. You know, and how many people are getting murdered in our city every year? And it gives you an idea of the spiritual climate of our city and praying that God would would move in the hearts of people to cause them to value the Lord and in turn valuing life. In verse 7, And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. I was thinking as I was reading this section of scripture this week, this is a lot of pressure for Noah and his three sons. They got to have a lot of kids, right? It's down to these four couples. This is it. And God's saying, be fruitful and multiply. Now, as we'll read, they lived long lives. uh, So they had had long lives and the opportunity to, to have lots of kids, but God's instructing them, it's time to go and repopulate the earth. From verse 8 to verse 17 is the covenant that God gives. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons, 
with him saying, and as for me, behold, I will establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. God makes the emphasis of saying, this is my covenant. Now, a covenant is an oath or a binding agreement. It's a pledge. And this covenant is unilateral, meaning that it's not dependent upon anyone other than God. It's a one-sided, one-party agreement or pledge that God is going to make to never flood the earth again. And he says, this is going to be to your descendants. Now, a little bit of the background of covenants that God makes. The first time that covenant is ever mentioned in the Bible is with Noah a few chapters back in chapter 6 when God gave a covenant to Noah that they would be saved in the ark. That's the first time that God gives a pledge. In a few more weeks in Genesis 12, we're going to see God making a covenant with Abraham that he's going to bless Abraham. And Abraham's descendants will be as the stars in the heavens and sands of the sea. Then in Exodus 20, God gives a covenant to Moses directed towards the children of Israel. And it is one that's based on the law. If you obey, you're going to be blessed. If you disobey, you're cursed. Then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God gives a covenant to David. David wants to build God a house. And God says, no, your hands are too bloody. But in turn, I'm going to build you a house and your descendants are going to reign upon the throne forever. Now, this was fulfilled in Christ. Christ is a descendant of David who reigns forever. And that was a covenant that God gave to David. Jesus, in Matthew 26, is having the Last Supper with his disciples, said, Behold, this is the blood of my new covenant. This is my broken body of my new covenant. God's saying, this is a new contract, a new covenant, a, a new oath that I'm bringing into, that we live in, that we enjoy, that's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ, trusting in what he's done to bring us into the forgiveness and favor of God. When we look at the covenants that God makes, he's always faithful to fulfill his covenant. Isn't that good news? For us to look at this tonight, when God gives this to Noah, this covenant of the rainbow that he's never going to flood the earth, that God has been faithful to that covenant. In verse 10, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth, thus I will establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living thing that is with you for perpetual generations. This covenant is universal. It's to all people and to all animals. All people have enjoyed this promise that God is not going to flood the earth again. There's not going to be a worldwide flood that brings judgment. Not that judgment's not coming, but it's not going to be by the means of a flood. Now have all understood God's covenant? No, but they still have enjoyed it. It's universal to all for all generations, and it's also unconditional. It's never again. Never again am I going to flood the earth because of your wickedness. Now, God could have said, let's wait and see how things go, right? He could have said, here's a second chance. Let's see if you guys mess it up again. If you mess it up again, here comes the floodwaters, right? 
I'm, I'm going to destroy the world once again with a flood. But this is an unconditional promise that God gives. The sign of this covenant is in verse 13. And I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. The rainbow is a reminder of the covenant. What's unique about a rainbow when we see a rainbow in the sky is it's the mixture of a storm and sunshine, isn't it? That's the only time that you see a rainbow. And at this point in history, it is that moment of a storm and sunshine. The flood has just diminished. They're back on dry land. There's sunshine, and this rainbow is a covenant of God's hope, God's future that he has for them. We see a rainbow a couple other times in Scripture. In Ezekiel 1, verse 28, it says that a rainbow has the likeness to the glory of God. So God's glory in some way is going to have the likeness to a rainbow. In Revelations 4, 3, there's a rainbow that's around the throne that lights up the throne of God. In verse 14, it shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every creature of all flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. What's interesting about this is God says the rainbow is a reminder to me. <laughs> Now, it's a reminder to us as well. When we stop and see a rainbow, God, you're gracious. After your judgment came your grace, and you're never going to destroy the earth again with a flood. But God sees the rainbow, and he's like, oh yeah, I'm never going to destroy these guys with a flood again. This is reminding me of my, my covenant as well. In verse 16, the rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it, the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is a sign of the covenant which I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Guys, it's been many, many, many generations and God has been faithful to this covenant, hasn't he? He has not flooded the earth this was the only time that there would be a worldwide flood. We can trust God's covenant. This covenant ultimately points to the covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. This is a covenant of grace, but how much more so the blood of Jesus Christ is a contract, a covenant. Unlike the covenant with Moses, it's not based upon our obedience, but upon the obedience of Christ. Now, is our obedience important? Yes, it's a response to the new covenant. But whatever's going on in your life tonight, you can with assurance as we celebrate communion in a few more moments to go, God, I know that you're faithful. You're faithful to this covenant, to your blood, that your body was broken, that your blood was shed. Think of the Passover. When judgment passed over the homes of Israel, it was when the blood was applied to the home. What brings us into peace with God? It's when we apply the blood. It's when we trust in the blood of, of Jesus Christ, the covenant of grace. Is there something different between the covenant of grace in Jesus and this covenant that we read of? Yes. Because you enjoyed the promise of the rainbow, whether you believed it or not. It truly was universal. You believe it or not, it doesn't affect that God had decided he's not judging the world with a flood. 
Now, is that the way it is with the blood of Jesus? Some would say that. Some teach a universal salvation, meaning Jesus died upon the cross, so you're saved whether you believe it or not. And that may sound nice. The only problem is it's in contradiction to the words of Christ. You look at John 3 specifically. We're going to get there soon on Saturdays and Sundays. Is where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And he says, if you believe, you're saved. But if you don't believe, you're condemned already. There's no salvation apart from believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Believing that he died for your sins and rose again. Repenting from sin and asking him uh, to be your, your savior. So in that sense, there is a difference in the new covenant and this covenant that was given. This last section comes to compromise. So we have the commission, the value of human life. Make sure that life is valued, that life is important. If you take someone's life, your life should be lost in turn. The covenant with the rainbow and the sign of the covenant. But now we have Noah's compromise in verse 18. Now, the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, my three sons. And Ham was the father of Canaan. Now, this is interesting, and it's going to be important, is that Ham already has a son, Canaan, and he is born after the flood period, because we know that he wasn't uh, included on the ark prior. So some time has gone by in order for Ham to have a son, and his son is named Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these three, the whole earth was populated. So from these three, the earth is then populated, and Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. This is part of the new beginning, right? You're not on a boat anymore. The sun is shining. The soil's fertile. It's ready to be planted. And so Noah takes up the art of farming. It almost seems as though Noah wasn't a farmer prior. We don't know that for sure, but it seems to read that way, doesn't it? Then he took up farming. He's endeavoring to grow food uh, for himself. This is the first bit of good news that Noah has received in a very, very long time. After all of the destruction and all of the death that was witnessed to plant these plants and watch them grow. I don't know if you enjoy gardening, but it's, it's satisfying. Kind of historically in our marriage, my wife Amber has been more into gardening than I have. And the last few years when we have done a garden, I've, I've gotten into it. And it's fun to plant those seeds to water and wait and watch God work. And see these little plants come up in the garden bed and then eventually get to eat them. And to have it to go from seed to a plant to then on, on your table. And Noah, I'm sure, was enjoying this process and life and this new beginning that was taking place. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. So now he's got grapes, makes some wine, begins to celebrate, drinks too much, and he's now drunk and he becomes uncovered in his tent. He's so drunk that now he's laying naked in his tent. Now, what does the scripture say about alcohol? It's important to, to know and understand. Well, he says to not be drunk with wine in the book of Ephesians, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So it's a sin when a person gets to that place of drunkenness because then the alcohol is in control instead of the Holy Spirit, which is obvious here in Noah's case, right? The, that 
alcohol as having an influence more than uh, the Holy Spirit. But as a believer, there is freedom to drink in moderation. The, the scripture makes that clear. So the sin wasn't in drinking. The sin was in drinking too much. And then if someone chooses to drink, one of the things you have to factor is if you're causing anyone to stumble in that decision. Say someone has a real problem with alcohol, you drinking around them causes them to find a, a license to, to uh, drink. And the scripture encourages to let each one be convinced in their own conscience before the Lord. You should be able to answer that in your own conscience before the Lord and then find liberty or freedom in where the Lord leads you as long as you're inside of the bounds of, of scripture. Some have tried to make Noah out to be that he didn't know better, that he wasn't really sure what would happen if he's drinking uh, this wine and it was almost a surprise to him that he got drunk. But remember, Jonah's 600 years old, or excuse me, Noah is 600 years old at this point. He knew what would happen uh, if he drank too much. Also remember the culture that he was living in prior to the flood. It was completely wicked. There was all kinds of perversion. Of course there was the abuse of alcohol. I am really comforted by this verse. And you're like, what? How in the world are you comforted? I'm so thankful for the scriptures that we hold in our hands, that God gives us real people with real stories, right? Because if we don't see any shortcomings in Noah's life, even though we read that God had grace upon Noah, we would only see his shiny stars. We would only see that he obeyed God in everything, that he was upright and blameless in his character. And we tend to think that Bible characters walk on water, and levitate everywhere they go. And that they're not real people with real struggles. And what we see right here with Noah is he loved God. And he trusted God and he obeyed God, but he also struggled. And he had a bad day here. And he made a poor decision. And he made a sinful decision, which I'm sure he's very embarrassed about. And then the poor guy has it recorded in Scripture for all of eternity. I mean, everybody that knows God and follows God that's read the word. And when we meet Noah, we're going to have a hard time getting this image out of our head, right? <laughs> See, but it's important for us to understand and to learn from Noah's mistake and also realize that God in his grace does use broken people. And God in his grace, he, he loves broken people. So we learn from it and we also understand that we too, we have our own struggles and, and weaknesses. Every person, every person has their struggles and weaknesses and, and sin. Here's the response that Ham has to his father's nakedness. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and he told his two brothers outside. He sees his dad and he's like, oh my goodness, dad is drunk and he's naked laying on the floor. And he must have been surprised, right? This is out of character for, for Noah. And there's something inside of all of us, our sinful nature that goes, I gotta get my brothers. I gotta tell someone about this. This is stinking hilarious, right? So he goes and grabs his older, his other two brothers, and he says, come on, guys, come see what's going on with dad. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both of their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father, 
Their faces were turned away, and they didn't see their father's nakedness. So Shem and Japheth, when they hear the news that dad's drunk and, and they're naked, and he's naked, instead of thinking that it was funny and wanting to expose their dad, they grab a garment, each on one side, and walk backwards and say, okay, you think we're there? All right. And they cover their father's nakedness. Now, I think there's really two powerful applications for us tonight in this. And one is very simplistic that sometimes I think we miss in the text is how are you going to respond to nakedness? When you're exposed to someone's nakedness, are you going to pray upon it like Ham did? Or are you going to protect their nakedness? Ham, he decided to go ahead and pray on the nakedness. But Shem and Jacob protect their father's nakedness. This is before Leviticus 18 is even written. But God in Leviticus 18 gives several situations of saying, don't uncover a person's nakedness. Nakedness is sacred to the Lord and is to be expressed inside of marriage. Inside of marriage, it's beautiful and it's God's design for edification. But outside of that, then we want to be someone who protects someone's nakedness and doesn't expose it. Pornography has become a huge thing and a huge problem for both men and women. And that has to do, obviously, with the issue of nakedness. And someone takes the position of being a predator when they're partaking in pornography. They're taking the ham position instead of taking the Shem and Japheth position. And God instructs Timothy and says, Timothy, you're a young man. You're a pastor in Ephesus. You're to treat your older women in the church as mothers and younger women in the church as sisters. Now, what does this mean? With all purity, right? You treat your mom with purity. You treat your sisters with purity. I have a younger sister. And if anyone wants to harm my sister, I'm taking them on a short-term missions trip to Mexico, right? And they're not coming back. Amen, right? It's like I can't even think of somebody messing with my mom. It's like time to get the 12-gauge shotgun. Let's go. Let's do this, right? You have that protectiveness towards your mom and your sister that, that's healthy. And that's to apply to all women. So men, if you get exposed to a lady's nakedness, what do you do? Do you see it as an opportunity? Or do you say, I, this is a, a place to walk integrity and to protect their nakedness, even if they're not valuing what God has given to them at, at this point. And so learn from that. We go, Lord, am I going to be a predator or am I going to be a protector when it comes to nakedness and sexual integrity? And then the second is this, is that love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. What Shem and Japheth do is they're covering their father's nakedness, their father's sin. And God covers our sin. Adam and Eve sinned, and God provided a covering for them. Jesus ultimately pays the price for our sin. Now, this doesn't mean that sin isn't dealt with, that we don't love each other enough to confront each other in, in humility, first examining the log in, in our own eye. But that's one-on-one. -on -one. That's going to someone so that we can win a brother. And a lot of times when we're dealing with someone's sins or mistakes, we share them with people that we shouldn't, don't we? Instead of going to that person and saying, look, I, I love you, I care for you, I'm going to cover 
your weakness because I know that I'm going to need that in my life. We tend to say, well, I need to go talk to this group of people. I, I want to go share this with, with others. And I'm sure that some of you are in a situation where you're exposed to someone else's sin or weakness, and tonight you're trying to decide, how do I deal with that, you know? Do I go share this with others? No. You pray about it, you go to them, and you seek to, how do I cover them? How do I not shame them, but honor them in the midst of this uh, situation? And that's so hard to do, but it's so great to have friends like that, isn't it? And we don't want to be a ham in this situation. We want to be a Shem and a Japheth. And guys, most of the time, this comes up in the context of family. This is coming up inside of Noah's family. If there's one thing that we should be encouraged about, especially in the book of Genesis, is every family that we read of is dysfunctional. Starting with Adam and Eve, and it almost gets worse the further that you go on in Genesis, right? And we realize, man, there's sin in my own family too, right? And so how am I going to deal with this inside of my own family as love covers a multitude of sins? In verse 24, so Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. I like the way that this is phrased. He woke from his wine. The, The wine had control over him. And then when he was sober, he's like, whoa, what in the world have I done? And he remembered enough to know that Ham had come in and went and got the other two brothers. So now he gives a cursing and a blessing. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. This is really interesting, is who gets cursed? His son. Canaan gets, gets, gets cursed. So why would God curse Canaan instead of Ham? Is Noah must already be seeing things inside of Canaan that are similar to Ham's character. Also, Noah is giving a prophetic word here. God is ushering a a prophetic word through Noah, and the Canaanites would be a people that are filled with idolatry and sexual sin that would be a thorn in the side of the children of Israel to the point when God would tell Joshua to wipe out the Canaanites. So God knows this about the Canaanite people and Noah pronounces this cursing upon them. Verse 26 said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. So Shem is blessed. He's part of this covering endeavor. And notice the emphasis, blessed be the Lord, which is Yahweh in the Hebrew, the God of Shem. It indicates Shem's relationship with God. Shem is in that covenant relationship with God, and the Canaanites are going to be a servant to Shem. And then Japheth, may God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. So Japheth's going to be enlarged, but yet he's going to be underneath Shem, and Shem is going to, excuse me, he's going to be underneath Shem, but the Canaanites will serve Japheth as well. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all of the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. After the flood, there was 350 years. He had a lot of life after the flood. He saw a lot of great things after the flood. If your life is drowning and it's going through the flood, there's going to be life after the flood. There could be 350 years after the flood. Keep going. 
and he dies at 950 years old. He saw so much in his lifetime. If there's one thing to be thankful for tonight, it's that heaven is real and we're not going to live 950 years. (laughs) Oh man, I couldn't imagine 950 years, right? So for us tonight is we want to know that God is faithful to his covenant. Know that God is faithful to his covenant. As you celebrate communion tonight, do this in remembrance of Christ, going, God, you're going to be faithful to your covenant. I'm trusting in your broken body and in your shed blood. And then to say, Lord, I want to be a person that covers nakedness, that doesn't expose it. We live in a culture that exposes nakedness, that lives in sexual perversity. And to say, God, I realize what you're calling me to. I want to be close to you. I want to be someone who covers nakedness. And then also to be someone who covers sin and instead of exposing it. Love covers the multitude of sin. To say, how do I go to this person directly and not air out all of their dirty laundry for the world to see? Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, we thank you for your work in our lives. We thank you for your covenant of grace in the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for the words on the cross that you declared, it is finished, it is done. We thank you that the payment has been paid in full. And as we celebrate communion tonight, God, would you meet us? Would you meet us in a special way and provide encouragement and strength and grace? We thank you that your grace is sufficient for us. And Lord, where sexual sin has taken hold and it's brought bondage, and we thank you for the blood of Jesus, where you died and you rose again to provide the freedom for sin. For those that are wrestling in pornography, that you would encourage them that there is a different way of living. And God, that you would help us to be able to Walk in a way that's honoring to you in this area. So, Father, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.